0: Welcome to The Kicker, CJR's weekly podcast about journalism and media. I'm Dave Uberti, a staff writer for the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, we talk about the wall between news and opinion at major American news organizations. Then we go toward the idea of news by way of algorithm, having programs decide what's newsworthy and what makes it to our home pages. And finally, we have a discussion with Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, who recently published a book on Chile, and it's 40 years since the Pinochet coup. We will talk to him a little bit about the media environment there and what lessons we can draw for the current time in the United States. Joining me today in the podcast, we have a full house. We have two Delacorte fellows, Carlette Spike and Pete Vernon. Welcome back to the show, guys.
1: Thanks for having us. Great to be back. And
0: then also, Tau editor for CJR, Noska Renner. Nauska.
1: Thank you for
2: inviting me out of my platonic cave of work into the light of your podcast, Dave.
0: Right. I mean, we didn't want to be too constructive on this podcast. So we figured, got to have Nauska back on.
2: <laughs> Thank you.
0: So first up, we wanted to talk a little bit about the divide between news and opinion, particularly at newspapers. And this has come up in the news cycle a couple of times in the past week or so, most recently with a scathing Wall Street Journal article about President Trump titled A President's Credibility. Among other things, the Wall Street Journal editorial board says that Trump clings to his assertions like a drunk clings to an empty gin bottle. And it warned in its kicker that if Trump doesn't show more respect for the truth, most Americans may conclude he's a fake president. Now this editorial comes after there's been some internal dissent in the Wall Street Journal newsroom over how tough it covers the new president. The Wall Street Journal is a famously conservative editorial board, and there's been some tension between that position and the newsroom's position with regard to Trump. This represents something of an alignment of those two visions. And it brings to the fore something that we've been watching here at CGR a little bit, which is that there seems to be more strain on this wall between news and opinion than there was before.
3: Yeah, that's something that has come up at a bunch of newspapers and not just in the newspaper, but at cable news where you have analysts, sometimes Trump backers, sometimes anti-Trump people brought on and interacting with a journalist who's hosting the show. But I think it's important to step back and, and recognize the difference between a newsroom who does traditional reporting based in fact using sources, and an editorial board whose job it is to give voice to the opinions of the paper's established opinionators, and also op-ed pages, which allow other commentators or opinion columnists to give their opinions. And I think that's something that readers don't always understand. So you might hear someone say, well, the New York Times said this about Donald Trump, or the Wall Street Journal compared him to an alcoholic they'll use that as a cudgel against the reporting of those papers.
2: Yeah, I've always had an extremely fraught relationship with the op-ed pages in general because when I go to the New York Times homepage, I immediately go to the op-eds. Like, I love to read them. I love analysis. I love that they get great writers and thinkers to do them.
3: You want to know what cab driver Thomas Friedman talked to this weekend? (laughs) Definitely.
2: (laughs) The, The only person I rarely want to hear from is Mr. Brooks. But... Moving on. I mean, the problem that I have with them is that I think that they have really suffered from the loss of context when they moved online. So if you were reading an op-ed in the paper, it's on the back page. You know at that point that you're in the world of opinion. It's such an established thing. But when you follow a link to somebody's thoughts or a modern love column or whatever, you aren't getting that context. I remember a piece, an op-ed that was published in the Times, maybe over the summer, that was written by Marine Le Pen, the far-right French politician. And there was just no context whatsoever to say, look, this is an extreme opinion. Like this is an extreme politician who is very radically on the right. And it just seemed crazy that there wasn't any kind of indication that the author wasn't a level headed. Well, in my opinion, not quite a a level headed writer.
3: That's a really good point. The online kind of the flattening of all content. And while you'll get a little bar that says opinion not everybody's going to see it and even if they do they're they're not always going to understand that this voice I'm reading does not speak for the big masthead at the top that says Washington Post, New York Times, whatever it is.
0: I have less of a problem with that than I do with some of these recent cases in which some of the opinions published by typically op-ed pages, either in print online, actually contradicted some of the newspapers reporting. So you have an example of the New York Times recently where a former member of the UK parliament, Louise Mensch, Uh, wrote something in an op-ed column that actually contradicted what New York Times national security reporters had reported with regard to Russia and Trump's involvement with the Kremlin. And they actually said so on Twitter. So it sort of provides readers with a little bit more confusion when they're trying to dissect this content that comes in front of them. And then also you have a recent example where a Fox News commentator by the name of Andrew Napolitano essentially reported on air citing three anonymous sources. The UK government had wiretapped the Trump campaign. And there's been no definitive proof on this. And actually, Shepard Smith, who's a Fox News journalist who hosts a day side program, actually went on air and said Fox News has no reporting that backs this up. So I think particularly in this day and age, my problem isn't necessarily the uh, integration of more voicey writing on the internet as it is when this voicey opinionated writing is factually incorrect and actually misleads readers.
3: Yeah. And I think opinion pages are a good place for debate about those sort of issues and editorial boards. This is something that has existed since uh, at least the mid 19th century, back to the days of Horace Greeley and the New York Tribune, that there was a separate section of the paper to allow people to voice their opinions, allow editors and editorial writers to tell people what to think or to endorse candidates.
2: Yeah. But on the other hand, I think what's really frustrating about them, and this was frustrating to me when it was in print as well, is that it really puts the burden on the reader to be able to add that extra level of analysis. For instance, when the Washington Post editorial board came out and said we shouldn't have published on Snowden's initial leaks was you know, unethical, that that was directly in contradiction to the fact that the Post themselves, and under Marty Baron, had, had posted. That's so ridiculous. It, it was crazy. They had posted the documents on PRISM. Media wonks like us can see that. But for a normal reader, you don't get that kind of context. And so you can see the debate laid out on the page, but it really takes an extra level of parsing to really understand what's happening.
0: Yeah. Carlette, I just wanted to flip it over to you because you're younger and hipper than the rest of us. Do you think that young readers, readers are primarily on digital platforms, maybe do non-text news, do you think they care as much about sort of this opinion versus news divide? Or is this something that us media geeks just obsess over?
1: I don't think millennials care as much as we kind of care, because I kind of get Nausicaa's point that this is our job and this is what we're looking at. So we're like really nitpicking. But I think for a lot of them, as long as there's clarity, like if they know that Fox News is right leaning and A lot of um, mainstream media has like a liberal bias or whatever. They come to it knowing that. So they know what to expect. But I still think it's possible to lay out the facts and know that this is a fact. And then whatever comes after that or whatever the context is might have a little bit of an opinion in it.
0: Right. I mean, th- this gets to a broader difficulty as well, though, because you mentioned Fox News and, you know, we know and savvy media watchers know that this is an extremely right wing network. But their tagline is fair and balanced. They present themselves as a legitimate down the middle news organization. On the other hand, you have The New York Times, which has a strictly sort of urban, liberal, cosmopolitan bent uh, which doesn't acknowledge that it does also have some of its own biases, uh, which I think irks a lot of people on the right wing as well. So I, I, I do think that you know it's, it's a little bit of a difficult territory to walk down, but I think some millennial-focused news organizations are doing a little bit better job of being upfront about at least some of their certain political stances.
1: Yeah, definitely. I know um, BuzzFeed, for example, they are obviously supporting LGBTQ movements and are open about that. So there's things that um, publications are going to take a stance on. But I think at the end of the day, it's hard to, especially with emotions running so high with Trump and the administration and everything going on in politics, it's hard to just be completely objective these days. And I think people are realizing that more and more.
3: Well, and I think it cuts both ways that for us, cosmopolitan New York biased liberal media, sometimes we don't acknowledge where that divide is. You know, you mentioned Fox News. And we see Bill O'Reilly and Sean Hannity and Tucker Carlson doing whatever it is they do that is not journalism at night. And then when Chris Wallace gives a great performance as a debate moderator, people are like, wow, Fox News. But you mentioned Shep Smith, Brett Baier, Chris Wallace. They have real journalists there that sometimes those on the left don't give enough credit to because they're conflating the opinionators and the analysts like Judge Andrew Napolitano um, (laughs) with the actual journalists who then have to go out and cover for them by saying, we do not, or not cover for them, but criticize them uh, and say, we do not have reporting to back this up because we've looked into this and we cannot corroborate. The statements that were made by this essentially opinion writer who was on our airwaves.
0: Right, it was pretty funny with regard to Napolitano, who said this thing that basically ignited an international incident. I mean, he did sort of portray it as a news report. He said, "I have heard three anonymous sources who have told me X, Y, and Z," and he actually put it out there. So it was a very Fox Newsy type thing. And I think it's worth noting that he's actually been taken off air indefinitely at the moment. So curious to see if he's ever let back on and under what conditions. But I do want to broaden it a little bit more. I did a, a trade session recently with business reporters with regard to fake news. And one of the questions that came up a few times was, how should we sort of broach this topic of misinformation and people's lack of trust in the media when there's more analysis within news reporting? And analysis inherently gives more leeway for a reporter or a writer to make their own observations, to add a little bit of their own contextualization, which to some people comes off as being sort of opinion journalism. Uh, And I think this is a trend that stretches back decades, right? Because people can get their breaking news from Twitter or Facebook or cable news or what have you. So to have sort of a text product, you need to add a little bit added value through your own analysis. But I'm I'm curious on what you guys think of, of that. Just on any given day on the front pages of major newspapers, such as the New York Times, they add a lot of analysis and some people aren't really comfortable with that. Is that a problem?
1: I don't think it should change the facts though. It's it's possible to give your opinion, to give context, but to give the hard facts and the facts should be the same across the board. I know it is possible to give some value to some numbers versus others and that can be an issue in itself. But even if you have analysis or you have opinion, so in Napolitano's case, that's obvious. He misrepresented the facts and it caused a huge issue. So that's something that obviously needs punishment. But if you just give your opinion, alongside the facts. I feel like I don't really see why that has to be so confusing for people.
2: Yeah, I think with context and analysis, there's doing it for the service of the public interest, and then there's doing it gratuitously. You saw last week with Rachel Maddow bringing out the one page of Trump's tax returns that she argued that she was giving appropriate context before releasing the one page that she had. But really, how viewers saw that was it was just like, Gratuitous. (laughs)
0: Gloviation.
2: Yeah. And and I think that's a really good example of that was just what reporters should do, but taken too far and taken in the service of getting viewers to watch for longer.
3: I think with this whole conversation, it's important to recognize the effect Trump has had on this shift. that as you mentioned, has been going on for a number of years. And it's not just something we see in politics. You see it in sports reporting. The value of a game story has been greatly diminished because everybody knows the scores already. The same with hard news reporting. People know what's happened. They're turning to a print product, if they are at all turning to a print product to tell them how to analyze and interpret the news they've already heard. And Trump has obviously made that uh, a more intense proposition. For example, in the New York Times on the news side, you see the word lie being used. And while that's caused much teeth gnashing and hand wringing among journalists, it's appearing in the news section. I don't imagine with a different president, that would be an issue. We haven't had that kind of language used before. And so when People who might support Trump or just question the New York Times bias see that word appear in the news section. They're saying, well, that's opinionated language drifting into news reports. Right.
0: And there's actually a funny example of this actually in the Wall Street Journal editorial. You know, like, I think the lie debate is an interesting example because it sort of gets to this core issue of journalists making assumptions. And people who don't like to use a term basically say, we can't know a person's motives, so we can't say that. That's going too far with our analysis. It's drifting into opinion. And the Wall Street Journal editorial, which was all about Trump's credibility, and this is the opinion side, mind you, so they had every right to call him a liar. They did some verbal gymnastics to not do so and described his seemingly endless stream of exaggerations, evidence-free accusations, implausible denials, and other falsehoods. My mom used to have a catch-all term for all of those things. Lying.
2: (laughs) Damned if you do, damned if you don't. That's all i got to say about that.
0: All right, moving on, we want to move to our next topic, which is Algorithms certainly a topic that has been one of intense discussion in media circles over the last few years, mostly with regard to social media and Facebook in particular and how it filters news that comes into your feed. But we wanted to jump off from a New York Times column by their public editor, Liz Spade, who is formerly our boss here at CJR and a mentor and a friend of mine. And she was basically outlining the Times' plan to apply algorithms to its homepage on its website. So I'm quoting from Spade here, the Times will be begin an ambitious new effort to customize the delivery of news online by adjusting a reader's experience to accommodate individual interests. What readers see when they come to the Times will depend on factors like the specific subjects they're most interested in, where they live, or how frequently they come to the site. This is certainly a big example of sort of a move toward news organizations using algorithms. But we've seen some other smaller cases where various journalists have experimented in certain instances with similar ideas.
3: Yeah, we've seen this overseas, and with apologies to our Swedish listeners, it comes from a paper called Svenska Dogblatt that has used an algorithm for the past several years to determine what appears on the front page of the website. And what they do is they give a score for newsworthiness to each story, the importance of it, and they also give a score to the timeliness. Is this something that should appear for a short time? that is kind of breaking news and needs to be there quickly? Or is it something that is maybe a longer feature profile that they want to highlight over the course of several hours or several days? And that basically is how they create their homepage. There's no homepage editor. There's no work for any person to do. It's entirely done by algorithm. And they've actually seen big success from that system.
2: Sorry, Pete, is this a personalized algorithm or is this uh, an algorithm that creates a homepage that every person sees?
3: So this is something that's slightly different than what The Times is doing because it's not personalized. It's based on editorial decisions about the stories, uh, whether they are, again, really important and newsworthy, whether they are something maybe less newsworthy but should have a longer shelf life for people to see and read because they poured a lot of resources in. Um, so they're not personalized in the same way that the Times is planning to make these changes.
0: Right. It, it responds to some user behavior, such as clicks or conversion rates or how long people are staying on pages. But yeah, it's certainly different than from what the Times is trying. And the editor there has actually credited it with really helping the paper turn around and into becoming a more vibrant digital landing spot. Nausicaa, you are speaking on behalf of the entire tech media community. I want to <laughs> ask you this. What do you think about news by algorithm are we giving these programs too much control over what comes into our feeds our home pages
2: i mean look algorithms by themselves it's not a bad thing to do it's not automatically negative personalizing a homepage isn't automatically negative the problem that you know has created things like filter bubbles on facebook or whatever is the idea that there's an algorithm deciding what you see and hiding other things and not giving you, the user, the tools to see how that's happening or to change how that's happening. And also, it's not necessarily showing you the same things that it's showing somebody else. The move on behalf of the Times is really fascinating to me for two reasons. One is that, on the one hand, it's kind of a capitulation to this idea of having personalized feeds. It's the time saying, look, there is some legitimacy in this idea and we are going to make changes on our site. And it kind of feels like they're just going where the tide is going. They're, They're admitting that it's not going to be sustainable to not do that. On the other hand, what they're doing, which is maybe really important, is that they are modeling for social platforms how it should actually work. So two important things that Liz points out are, first, that they aren't Personalizing everything. They're making sure that users are mostly, you know, they're at least going to see like twenty to thirty of the same stories as everybody else. Right. This is something that also the NPR one app algorithm does as well. Yeah, and just making sure that people all see the top stories. That's something that Facebook does not do, even though they have trending topics. That's not based on newsworthiness. And the second thing that they're doing that Liz mentions at the bottom is that they're gonna make it Transparent to the user, or she encourages them to do that. So that would mean like being able to pull levers about how much entertainment you want to see, and and that kind of thing. That's also something that Facebook does not do. So I think in doing this, they're going with the flow, but they're trying to put forward a more ethical way of doing it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I certainly think from a business standpoint, and just to recap. The Times is certainly going in a more reader-centric direction with its revenue. They want a deeply loyal customer base that pays them money for their journalism. They want people to spend time at nytimes.com to get their digital subscriptions to stay with that. So I think from a business perspective, personalizing content to some extent, personalizing the stuff that appears in people's homepages is a really, really smart move for them. And I think it bodes well for them to continue gaining traction with people who want a sophisticated and increasingly personalized news experience. And I agree with you that sort of the 20 to 30 top stories are really important. Having said that, I think there is something lost that we need to recognize a little bit. And people have been bemoaning this for a long time since sort of the print to digital shift in text. When you read a newspaper, for example, there is some aspect of discovery where you scan over different headlines and you come across things that you really wouldn't come across otherwise. And most of that stuff you don't end up reading. You read the headline, it's not something you like, so you go on to the next story. But sometimes you read the headline and you read the lead and it could be something that really sparks an interest that wasn't there before. So I think it's hard to replicate that online full stop. But I do think this sort of accelerates the loss of that in some senses. Carlette, do you think that's an important thing, sort of this, this aspect of discovery?
1: I definitely do. And I think, for me anyway, the fear is the loss of choice. Just that kind of like what you said, if you weren't thinking about it and it's not something on your mind, this could have actually been a story for you or it could have been something you would have actually stopped and read. But now you don't have the choice and now you don't even see it. So you kind of lose out on that content, you know?
2: yeah, I, I I totally agree with you, but I think that that's not really on the time shoulders. That element of serendipity is something that was amazing about the original internet. That's when we had like web art, and like you had to like really go out in search of the weirdo bloggers who were listing albums for you to listen to. <laughs> and like and that kind of environment where you as a person have to go in search of things that you want to see is just so over. And it's really sad. I totally agree. But I feel like the Times is behind the Times as far as that goes.
3: I think I'm of two minds about this because I agree the loss of serendipity that you get by flipping through a physical paper is something that I really miss, except on Sundays when I buy a physical paper. And all of a sudden on A14, there's a story I would never have seen online that becomes my favorite thing I read this week. But I also think from The Times' perspective, if they're trying to draw a more loyal reader base that is going to pay for their content, that it is a good thing to try and meet people where they are, as long as they have editors deciding, here are the really important national and international stories you need to hear, here are the stories that we poured our resources into that we want you to appreciate, whether it's arts coverage or a profile or whatever. But let's say you're someone who has an interest in sports. And I never go to the New York Times to read sports because, in general, Who I does? don't. Who yeah, does? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I but take if, that back.
0: There's some there's some great stuff John there. Branch is great. Right. Um,
3: but if they have all of a sudden I'm seeing on the periphery of my homepage experience at the New York Times more and more sports stories, maybe I'll change my opinion about their sports section and think, hey, this is a place that I can go f- as a destination for the sports coverage I want to see. And I'm really not going there to see their coverage of the theater because I can't afford theater tickets in New York. So I don't need to see those stories popping up in a space that could be better utilized for other topics that I'm actually interested in.
0: Right. I think the, the Swedish paper and the Swedish editor make a good point in that sort of having the algorithm for their homepage just is a, just a logistical help in you know producing the website. It saves them whatever, 15 minutes per piece of content just to get it up. And so if you you multiply that by however many thousands of pieces of content that you publish every year, that's a hell of a lot of time. I think sort of the dystopian endpoint that a lot of probably old school journalists are worried about is that you will increasingly have more and more of this algorithm-driven news judgment on your website, and then you will actually see what people read, and that will lead to some certain parts of the newspaper, certain types of coverage being cut, which is obviously good in a business sense, but aren't but,
3: we already seeing what people read? Like, you can measure clicks and content. Like, who's reading what? Cer-
0: certainly already happening. And I, I know just having access to CGR's metrics, I can, like, see a story that I've spent six weeks on. and oh, like, just nobody just down the toilet. Nobody read it. Oh, my it, God, and it then, happens so often. And That's why you've got to like, have those fire takes. <laughs> just have a fire take that just goes crazy on Twitter. It's, uh, it's a weird thing.
2: Yeah. I, I mean, I have to say that I'm somewhat confused by the fear of automation that journalists have because the homepage thing, it's like, why even call that an algorithm? Sure, you're like making decisions about how newsworthy something is. That's just like one step of automation away from something that already exists in WordPress.
3: Well, it's, it's fewer jobs, right? That they don't have to pay for web page editors. And the argument that- No, the, it's not
2: fewer jobs. It's more time for the people who have those jobs. It's I'm, not It's not getting rid of somebody's job.
3: Well, so he was uh, the editor-in-chief of this paper. He was down at South by Southwest talking about it. And his argument was we eliminated jobs in our digital presentation space. We're actually able to repurpose those resources, the money we, we used to spend paying someone to do that work. And now we're putting that into reporting.
2: Right. And that, to me, is ideal. And, like, why be afraid of that in an algorithm? I mean, even I was talking to somebody who works on mobile notifications at the Times. And basically it's the desk that used to be like just totally like the homepage A1 desk is now also working on mobile notifications. They're, you know, they're so much more integrated into all of the editorial functions of the Times now that some of the technology has expanded and taken away some of nuts and bolts work of it.
0: Right, the tyranny of mobile notifications.
2: Another topic for another day.
0: All right. For our third segment, I want to welcome a special guest to the show, an investigative reporter and a visiting journalism professor at the Columbia Journalism School. We have Jeff Kelly Lowenstein. Jeff, welcome to the program.
4: Thank you very much for having me, guys.
0: So you wrote a book that was published last year called The Chilean Chronicles, Moments in Memory, 40 Years After the Pinochet Coup. Tell us a little bit about sort of the motivations behind writing it.
4: Yeah, well, I was uh, my wife and I were living in Chile for five months. I was a Fulbright scholar from July to December in 2013. So it was this really exciting moment in our lives. And it was also a very exciting time in the country's history because it was coming up on the anniversary of 40 years since the coup where the military headed by Augusto General Augusto Pinochet overthrew the democratically elected government of Salvador Allende and ushered in a dictatorship. So it was just a very rich time in the country. And shortly after I got there, I just started blogging really actively. I'd had a blog that I'd kept for a number of years, but it just felt like a good way to register what was happening. And then over time, I just felt like this could be a really neat opportunity to try and turn this cumulative writing into a more focused book. Right.
0: During the dictatorship, obviously, we see from several regions of the the world throughout history, authoritarian rulers often manipulate the media or crack down on the media in one way or another. What was Pinochet's record on that? What was sort of the the media environment throughout his reign in Chile? and, And how has that changed now?
4: It's a really important question, Dave. And when there's one newspaper in particular, the largest newspaper in the country, that many people felt were complicit in the dictatorship in the silencing of any type of official dissent in, according to a lot of people's perspective, abandoning journalism's core responsibility of providing public service, of being a source of accountability. And it was really interesting because in the buildup to the anniversary and then on the day itself, there was just an eruption of memory, of media, of film. But this same newspaper, the day of the anniversary, 40 years after the coup, just had a small little note in the corner, like the upper right corner of the front page, a coup happened 40 years ago today. Hmm. So it was really interesting. That particular outlet still is kind of going with the official line in silence, but it's much more robust press environment than it used to be under the dictatorship. But I was there actually to study. They had a landmark freedom of information law that was passed in 2009 and i was looking into who was actually using the law about 5 close to 5 years after it was passed what was very interesting was many journalists were not using it because they were used to relying on sources they felt it took too long the attitude of a lot of the bureaucrats was still this is proprietary information this is my information it's not the public information and so a lot of the people who were using the freedom of information law were more Not NGOs, nonprofit organizations, or individuals who wanted to find something out. So it was a very interesting moment. And then, of course, social media has really opened up places all over the world.
3: I'm interested in how, when you were down there covering this momentous anniversary, what sort of access, what sort of conversations did officials and people who had either been part of the dictatorship or people who had been part of breaking it down, what kind of access were they giving you?
4: Well, it, it was mixed. On the one hand, certain very luminary people were far more accessible in Chile than what we would usually find here in the United States. So, for example, President Bachelet, who was running for reelection, her mother was a very prominent person. And I saw her at a public event, just went up and started talking to her. She answered my questions. It was great. Uh, I met Judge Guzman, who was the judge who made the decision ultimately to indict Pinochet, which was just a very significant moment in the country's history. And I met him at a public event, got his email. It was like Wes Guzman at (laughs) AOL.com. And after about three or four times, we went and met in his office, talked to him. He gave us half an hour. Wonderful interview. So that was on the one hand. And then on the other hand, the people who really were involved in the dictatorship There was, for example, a a torture center called Via Grimaldi on the outskirts of of one of the neighborhoods in Chile. And when the dictatorship was ending, they destroyed all the records so that what exists there at Via Grimaldi has been reconstructed through torture survivors' memories. So those types of people who were really deeply involved they're not super eager to talk. So there was one guy who was the head of the uh, the kind of Secret Service there, uh, which did a lot of very heinous acts, and he was being kept there. But yet when we asked people in the neighborhood, where is Via Grimaldi, where is this guy being kept there? Oh, we, we don't know, we've never heard of it. So there's still a lot of issues of silence there.
0: You mentioned earlier the newspaper that had sort of towed the regime line yeah. over the course of, of Pinochet's dictatorship. I'm just curious, maybe like tactically speaking, when he was in power, How did he handle the media environment? Because obviously you have implicit actions where you could threaten action against uh, news organizations. You have more kinetic things where you actually change the laws or close the doors of of various newspapers. You could threaten people in public just to give public pushback. I'm just curious, on a more tactical level, what are some of the things that he did?
4: Yeah, well, one of the big sources of counter messages during the dictatorship was through the church. And there was a particular group within the church that documented very extensively the human rights abuses under great threat. And so that was really one of the vehicles by which people who were trying to get an alternative view out were able to do so. But Pinochet both through threats. And I think it's really important to note that right after he came in was just a dramatic surge in disappearances, in murders, in people literally being seized off the street. And so the legacy of that time was still really very alive in Chile, even 40 years after the coup and then almost 25 years after Pinochet left power. So, for example, there was this one gentleman, Don Manuel, who sold sort of trinkets and tchotchkes near one of the local subway stations. And my brother came down to a project that we got support through through the Pulitzer Center And we just started asking him a little bit about, what do you remember about that time? And you could just see the guy was 88 years old, but he was just really spooked thinking about that time. So Pinochet had a number of different strategies he used specifically with the press, some some more heavy-handed than others. But the whole climate, the whole environment was really, miedo, like terror, was really instilled in there. And still, for some people, I think that country is still emerging from those wounds in that time.
0: I know previously you were also an investigative editor at OI, which is a Spanish-language daily newspaper out of Chicago. And I believe Chicago maybe has the fourth or fifth largest Hispanic American population in the United States, uh, maybe one or two million people. I'm just kind of curious if you could speak at all to Spanish-language media's role in the Chicago media environment, more broadly speaking. And, and what, if any, the differences are in the stories that you'd have in OI, how your ad- audience would respond compared to, say, The Trib or The Times.
4: Yeah, I, I loved working at OI. And I I was there for about two and a half years. And part of what I would do there would be occasionally to go to the page one meetings for the Chicago Tribune, which I also love, everybody sitting around a big table and kind of saying what the stories were for the day. It's a nice building, yeah. A beautiful building. I mean, it it, it was great. And what was really striking was at that point at Tribune, there were hundreds of people largely really focused on dominating Chicago and the Chicago news space. And then I'd go downstairs to OI, where we were sitting around a table not much bigger And where we are here in this room, 11 people, and first of all, the composition of the team, we have people from Mexico, we have people from Puerto Rico, we have people from Spain. But if there was a fire in Brazil at a nightclub which killed 20 people, that was a big story for us. When the pope got chosen, the most recent pope, that he was from Argentina, that was a huge issue for us. The issues of immigration When I was at OI, President Obama did the Deferred Action, the the Dreamers Act. That was a really big story. And we weren't that surprised that when people went to Navy Pier and they thought they were going to get 1,000 people, 30,000 people showed up. So it was a very interesting reminder that a very small team can have a sort of broader perspective in terms of what a coverage area is. And if we looked at our analytics, we actually had more readers online in Mexico than what we had in Chicago. So it, it just was a really neat difference in kind of expanding my view of what that meant in Chicago and then kind of how you think about story. And I think there's been a growing understanding of the importance of Spanish language media. Uh, Terry Arvisu, who is one of the board members, Univision, was just honored with the Studs Terkel Award recently. So I think within the Chicago media community, there's a growing understanding that, to your point, I mean, it, it, it's actually the, the second largest Latino community in the country, uh, and, and it's it's a very significant part, not just of Latino news or Spanish language news, but just news in the city. If you really want to understand what's happening in Chicago, you need to understand what's happening in Spanish language.
0: In your view, are there any additional sort of barriers to reporting in those communities, since so many of them are immigrants coming from places that maybe don't have the same sort of media culture that the United States does?
4: Yeah. When I was there, it was a bit of an open moment because uh, I think there was still, especially after President Obama's second election, there was really kind of a hope. He said that on the election night when he won at at McCormick Place, you know, we got to really do immigration reform. He made somewhat of a push, but people were actually quite, in the community, I think were quite disappointed with how he handled things in the early part of his first term. So I think there was there was more of an open moment. But yes, yeah, certainly among some people, there was fear around giving out their names and talking about what was happening. On the other hand, a lot of the dreamers were very, very forthright. They, they had temporary kind of sanctuary, but even even the ones who were undocumented, and Illinois and Chicago was pretty sympathetic. Chicago is now a sanctuary city and so on. So I, I felt like that there definitely was some fear. And so we did, for example, a story about domestic violence and it led to some really interesting conversations about how someone can get involved in law enforcement and then potentially get deported. So, you know, there definitely was that fear and that presence there. But on the other hand, I think a lot of people uh, both because Chicago was pretty sympathetic and also through their own courage and resilience and strength, they were willing to talk. and say what was going on and really kind of honor us by sharing their stories and experiences with us.
0: All right, Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, thanks for being on. The book that he wrote, published last year, is the Chilean Chronicles, Moments in Memory, 40 Years After the Pinochet Coup. Jeff, thanks for being on.
4: Thanks very much for having me, guys. And We're we're having a reading in the uh, room downstairs, the Student Center at 5 o'clock on Monday, March 27th, NEHJ, the school chapter, and then the DART Center, our journalism at Trauma, are co-sponsoring. So anybody who's welcome, we'd love to have you. And thanks so much for the opportunity.
0: That was our show. Thanks for kicking with us. I want to thank Tau Editor Nausicaa Renner and Delacorte Fellows Carlette Spike and Pete Vernon for being on, and also Jeff Kelly Lowenstein, our special guest. Please subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever else you get your podcasts. Leave us a comment and a rating. We'll love you forever. Also go to cjr.org, become a member of the Columbia Journalism Review, get a few print issues a year, plus a weekly column by yours truly at cjr.org. Once again, thanks for kicking it with us, and we'll see you next week.